was asking the Lord what uh, what he wanted to go through this evening. And um, I was led to Psalm 42 from our readings, as well as Psalm 103. So I'm, I have a, just a handful of slides, um, but I just want to share um, some thoughts as we meditate over those particular Psalms and uh, just go through that with you tonight and then open it up for discussion here at the end and um, see what's on your heart and how the Lord might speak to you um, through just something that you might hear from his word this evening. Um, give me a moment and I'm just going to share my screen. So the first three verses, um, I wanted to read those from Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? So the setting you know, that this psalmist, what we're, what we read is that he's in great turmoil and he's having a lot of suffering. He's having a lot of life's challenges thrown at him. And those around him are looking at him, knowing that he's professing to believe in this God, the, you know, God of Abraham. Um, and they're saying, where's your God? You know, where, where is this God? You know, you're, he's obviously not taking care of you. He's not looking after you. And, you know, people say that, you know, people say that, today, don't they? You know, where is your God when trouble comes and you've been standing, um, professing your faith and things start to happen and, you know, people begin to, to like look at you and mock even in those situations sometimes. And so for where is your God? My answer is that he's on the throne. He's on the throne of the universe. There's no one above him. He's in complete control. And I have to say that by faith you know, but I believe it. That's the truth in my heart. I believe that, you know, where is your God? He's in control. That's where he's at. He's in control. That's the answer. He's at the controls of the universe. So I need to follow that up with two things that are hard truths to accept, but I have to accept them, you know, if I'm really going to face reality. And truth number one is that God is responsible. I can't be upset with the distinction between God's ordained uh, will and God's permissive will. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there are those who draw a distinction between what God decides and what he allows. And so the distinction that's helpful, but it still means that God has allowed something. And I can't believe that God caused something terrible because, you know, God's not evil. I can't believe that God is malicious or cruel to his children. But if you say that it's his permissive will, then that doesn't remove a bit of a problem in our thinking, you know, because God is still responsible for what happens. You know, the very fact that he did not intervene and did not step in and, and he's allowed those certain tragic things to happen means that he is responsible. But having said that, I've also got to continue and go on to declare a second thing that balances it out. And that is that if God is responsible for tragic events, he is not responsible to us. And so I want you to grasp that very important 
truth. You know, God is responsible for these events, but he is not responsible to man. And I want to tell you what I mean by that. You know, when we studied the book of Job, we saw that Job appeared to be trying to justify himself just over and over again and again. He appears to be saying, I don't deserve these tragedies. You know, I don't deserve the suffering. But when we read between the lines, we see that Job is saying to God, basically, you know, you need to justify yourself to me. You've got to satisfy my intellect um, so there I can understand that there's a good reason for allowing these things to occur. He's basically telling him, I want you to answer me before I can continue trusting you. And at the end of the book, God says, Job, have you forgotten who you're talking to? It is, you know, this is still um, I who asked the questions, not you, is what he's saying. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I called forth the winds and the snow and the rain? Job, have you forgotten who you are and have you forgotten who I am? Finally, you know, we know that Job comes to this point where he acknowledges that God is responsible, but he's not responsible to Job. And here's an important truth. God is responsible for everything that happens on planet Earth and throughout the universe. But he is, you know, the reason for that is that he's on the throne and because he's completely sovereign and because there's no power above God and everything is under the Lord's control. So he is responsible even for what he allows, but what he's not responsible for is to give me an explanation as to why he's doing anything. It is, you know, actually just totally unfitting for the creature to say to the creator, explain yourself to me or I can't believe in you. The right response to this first truth of God's sovereignty in this particular time in the now is the response of submission. You know, a tragedy is actually an opportunity to submit to the sovereignty of God and to say, your will be done. That's not popular thinking or talking. It's really not an easy attitude for human beings to have. It's not a, you know easy position for someone to take when they're in the middle of tragic things. But there are three levels of submissions, I'm sorry, submission that I, I want to mention. And each one is deeper than the previous one. First of all, there is, you know, basically just a submission to God because he's powerful. You know, in other words, God, you're bigger than I am, so I've got to submit. There's a kind of submission that just says, you know, God's big and I'm small, so I've, I have to submit. But that's not true submission. And then there's a second level of submission, which is to submit because God's holy and I'm sinful. Well, this is not so much of a, a physical degree of submission, but it's more of a moral degree of submission. So if I object to some evil thing happening in my life, or if I object to being hurt, or if I object to a tragedy invading, you know, the peace of my existence, then actually behind that objection lies the assumption that I didn't deserve it, like Job was saying. But when I realize that he is a holy God and that I am a sinful person, the real truth is that I deserve everything that comes to me 
And there is a moral reason for submitting to God. So the fact is that I don't deserve health. That's just, that's just a reality. The problem to my mind should not be about what goes wrong, but really about anything that goes right in my life. You know, if I were really humbled before the Lord as my maker, I would say, you know, if I'm driving down the road, Lord, if, if you kill me tonight as I'm driving home, that really wouldn't be more than I deserve. Um, there is a submission that is due to fear, and there's a submission that is also due to fatalism, but there's a deeper submission still, and that's the submission of faith. Fatalism says God is all-powerful, so I, I have to submit to him. Fear says God is all holy, so I deserve what I get, and I just have to accept that. So that interprets all tragedy as punishment from God when you look at it like that, that he's doing it because we've been bad, and that's not true. So it's really actually a doubtful submission. There's a deeper one still, and it's the submission of faith that says, God, I believe that you are in control. I believe that you are sovereign. I believe you are responsible for this, but I believe you know what you're doing. And if I knew what you were doing, I would know that you have a very good reason for doing it. That's a deeper form of submission. That I, I can honestly say it's part of my testimony because I experienced that. And I don't like <clears throat> brag on myself, but I'm thankful for the test in that area of my life, because when the Lord took my 18 year old daughter, you know, I had people saying to me, it's okay to be angry with God. I wasn't angry with God. Not ever one second, not one second was I ever angry with him. I truly just thought exactly that. I thought, I don't know why, but I'm thankful for the 18 years that he gave me with her. And I know he's good. I know that his promises are true. And he says that he'll work all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose and love him. <clears throat> so I knew that, you know, also that he says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I know he says that better is the day you die than the day you were born. So all of that in that moment just began to put me into a position to have to decide, did I believe it? Did I really believe it? And so I, I was faced with that. And I mean, that's really where I came to terms with understanding submission in the greatest way, knowing that um, I can still go on without having to look to other things to satisfy my soul or be, you know, live in a state of confusion with how I think about God or interpret that situation. I just have to trust that he is good and he is God. And he doesn't owe me an explanation. And so um, many people who can't understand what's happened to them, people that haven't been able to answer the question, you know, where is your God? Why has he done this? Why has he allowed this? Have still found even sometimes, um, you know, an element of peace of mind in submitting to the sovereignty of God, even though they might not have the answer and they might not no, you know, they might not have that surety in their soul yet. There are actually some great examples in scripture of that kind of submission. Um, and one is in the Old Testament that comes to mind, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace for their faith. They were in there because they wouldn't renounce their religion. 
Their last words is they were thrown into that furnace. I love these words, but if not, you know, because they said, even if not, remember those words. Our God is able to get, get us out of this trouble. We have a God who could put these flames out just like that. We have a God who can bring us out of this impossible situation that you've placed us in. We have a God who can keep us safe. But even if not, that is the kind of acceptance of the sovereignty of God that God wants. And I also turned to the pages in the New Testament and I see a man that's in such agony that a well-known um, medical uh, state occurs and there are drops of blood oozing from the pores of his brow. He's in such mental stress and he prays desperately that the crisis that he's facing, you know, could be averted. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And you have it all in these two phrases from the Old and the New Testament, not my will, but yours, and nevertheless. It's a recognition of the sovereignty of God in the present. You know, I have to say, God, you've allowed these things to happen. You're not responsible to us. You don't have to explain to us why, but we submit to your sovereignty. We accept that it is your will. I read a story <clears throat> um, recently about an undertaker that was explaining the difference that he noticed between Christian funerals and, and other funerals. And he says that he can pick out the Christians right away. Um, and it's not because of those who you know are crying and those who aren't. Christians can cry. The undertaker said that he found um, sorrow, you know, in Christian homes and non-Christian homes. But he said, I'll tell you one thing, though, that I've uh, never seen once in all of my days as an undertaker. He said, I've never gone into a Christian home that it, at funeral times and found bitterness or resentment. And that is really a remarkable tribute. You know, when Job heard of the loss of his entire family in one disaster, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Submission to God's sovereignty is really, really a wonderful thing. And it's the first step towards dealing with tragedy. But, you know, I also wanted to actually point out that in Islam, that word Islam means submission. And Muslims, uh, or the word Muslim actually means surrendered one. So the heart of that religion is submission to the sovereignty of God. You know, they teach submission as well. They teach it almost to the point of fatalism. But what we're talking about, what I'm telling you right now, is something that Islam can't tell you. You know, I'm telling you that not only is God sovereign, but God suffers. And that is something that you don't find in a faith like Islam. Not only is God sovereign, you know, and one to be submitted to, he is a God who suffers. And so the right response to this truth is to be willing to share in his sufferings. You know, and I don't know where it came along that we got into the idea that Christianity is some way out of suffering. You know, Jesus himself said that we're in a hostile environment and this earth because he was in one first. He said, they hated me first. He didn't say, take up your cushion and follow me. He said, take up your cross, you know? Uh, so he, he, 
he said, take up your cross to follow him, not the cushion. I'm, I'd lost my train of thought, sorry. Um, and so I find that in light of a God who suffers and who calls for a response to share in that suffering, that tragedy shouldn't really become a problem to us, but a privilege. And when we look in the pages of the New Testament, we don't find them saying, you know, what a problem their suffering was. You know, why, why did God let this happen to us? Surely because we're serving him, he's promised us safety, right? Don't forget, you know, also that the devil tried this with Jesus, you know, at the very beginning of his ministry. One of the three temptations was, why don't you uh, grasp Psalm 91? That's what he was essentially saying and make it your visible insurance policy for the world to see. You know, it says there that if you make God your defender, your protector, that he'll guard you. 1,000 may fall beside you, but nothing will touch you. You don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear disease. He'll send his angels to catch you, lest your foot dash against a stone. The devil was saying, make your faith in God an insurance policy for safety. But Jesus knew he was to suffer, not to be safe. So he rejected that call from Satan to regard um, you know, safety as God's obligation to his servants. God never promised that to me. He didn't promise it to you in this life. He promised us salvation and eternal life. He doesn't promise safety. So the second thought that comes to me as I think about tragedy is this, that God is a God who not only is sovereign to whom I can submit, he's a God who suffers and who calls me to share in that. You know, when Israel was trapped at the Red Sea, with the Egyptian army on one side, the desert on another, uh, the mountains you know, on, on another side and the Red Sea on their fourth side, their temptation was to panic and run. And Moses' command for them was to stand still. You know, Some Bible translations say, hold your ground, stay where you are, hold on and see what God will do to save you. Then Moses you know, tells them now move forward and God saved them. Our temptation when tragedy comes is to panic, to run, to shrink. But the word of God says, stand still, hold on, and see what God will do to save. God is committed to a salvage operation in all reality. When people say, where is your God? The truth is he's in the future. He's the God who inhabits eternity. So from that future perspective of a total salvage operation, I can look back and I can see present tragedies in a different light. You know, Paul's writings record how he suffered stoning, whipping, flogging, being shipwrecked, uh, traveling dangerous roads. He was weary in every part of his body showing the scars of the bad treatment that he'd had. But when you read Paul's writings about suffering, he always looks at them from the perspective of God's future salvation. He steps out of the present and into the future when he looks back. He looks at the pain and he says, it's momentary, light affliction, which is working an exceeding weight of glory. It's so small. Anything that is far away looks small. When you're in the present and you're in the suffering and you're in the tragedy, the future salvation you know, seems small and far away. But the New Testament is saying that in faith, which is the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen, step out into that future and look back at your suffering. Look back at the tragedy and you'll see a momentary light affliction 
and something working an exceeding weight of glory. In other words, not only has God allowed the suffering, not only has he experienced it, but he's also incorporated it into this salvage operation. Pain is suffered, you know, it, it, and if something um, is worthwhile, God can work all things together for good. You know, God is committed to, to salvaging a world one day. That's just the reality that that's what the future holds. He's going to make everything right. So the response that the Bible is calling for to the salvation of God in the future that we see in this Psalm 42 is to sing. That's how it closes up, to suffer in song. And I've known a lot of people who've suffered in silence, and people definitely have different ways of dealing with tragedies. But in Psalm 42, he's saying, you know, the waves of sorrow have been rolling over me like billows. They've got me under. So I'm going to seek to put my hope in you and I'll sing to you. I'll get out my heart. I want to go to bed tonight with a song. So show me your constant love during the day so that I will have a, a song to sing at night. So from Psalm 42, I think we find three dimensions the sovereignty of God in, in the present to which my true response is to submit, the salvation of God in the future to which my true response is to sing, and the suffering of God in the past to which my true response is to share. And so that's um, covers it for what I wanted to share from Psalm 42. And now I'm going to um, move into Psalm 103. So Charles Spurgeon um, used to say that Psalm 103 would suffice if it were the only um, song that was placed into the entire hymn book for the church. You know, that if all they had was that psalm to sing every Sunday, that would be enough. And so it's a song that doesn't ask God for anything. There's no shopping list, you know, it's not asking God, nothing to ask from the Lord. And so the reason um, is that David in this Psalm, he wants to bless the Lord. And most people are familiar with the thought that God, you know, could bless us. In fact, the very term, God bless you, it's used by, you know, people that understand the meaning of it and even people that don't understand the meaning of it. It's just a familiar idea, but you do realize that you could give God a blessing, don't you? You can't, you know, and this is what we see in the Psalm. And it's that God wants something from us. He wants an offering from us. And this is what this Psalm is all about. You know, that there's only one thing that you can give God that he didn't give you first. You can't bless him with money because all the money in the world belongs to him anyway. And you can't bless him with anything that you have except just one thing. And that's to give him your thanks and your praise. That's all we have. That's all we can bless him with now. You know, so everything else that's given when you wake up tomorrow morning, um, it's going to be given to you by the Lord. Every good thing is a gift from above. It'll be a blessing to you. Even when you bring your money, that's a blessing that was given to you first. But if you bring your praise and your thanks, you're going to give God a tremendous blessing. And so David starts the psalm out talking to himself, and he tells himself to bless the Lord and realizes that if he's going to do this, that he has to do it in three ways. He needs to do it individually, inward, 
uh, inwardly and intellectually, intelligently. So what do you say when you're in silence with the Lord? Whether it's at a congregation, when there's times of quiet, or starting out your own personal pray prayer time, um, I'd like to suggest that a very good thing to do that we see here in this psalm is to begin the, the personal time of prayer uh, with the Lord or the beginning of a service with, bless the Lord, O my soul. You're telling, you're instructing your soul to bless the Lord. In other words, don't worry yourself about the people that are around you for a moment. You know, just focus on the fact that you want to bless the Lord today. It has to be an individual thing. I have something to offer to God. At the beginning of worship, in the pri private prayer moments, um, you can start with, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Secondly, if you're going to worship properly, even when you are with the crowd, you have to do it inwardly. The Lord is not interested in what is happening on the outside of us. The religion of the Bible is a religion of the heart. It has to come from the inside. It's an inward thing. Whatever we do with our bodies, whether it's standing up, sitting down, kneeling, shutting our eyes or opening them, whatever we're doing with our lips or our mouth, doesn't matter. The most important thing is what, what is happening within me. What am I thinking about when prayers are being offered? Where are my thoughts going during a sermon? You know, did, am I thinking things like, did I leave the gas on or what I was thinking about a TV show, something I was listening to on the rate in the radio, you know, what is happening within me? The, the Lord knows what's happening within me. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And so the true test of my blessing the Lord and, and worship will be what's going on inside me. What am I really feeling? What am I really thinking? I might not tell anybody else what I'm thinking in the service or how I'm feeling, but God doesn't even look at that. It may be that even my facial expressions are misleading and not really telling you what I'm thinking or what other people, you know, when you're looking, you can't really tell what they're thinking. But deep down, what is happening within me is what will make the worship. If I'm full of love and joy and peace, then I'm going to help that service tremendously. But if I'm all twisted up inside, if I'm worried and anxious or resentful or unhappy, then that's going to affect it too. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. That is the individual part of public worship. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's what it's meant by loving God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and your strength. All those things are within you. And this is what God desires. Worship surrounds memory. What is the central act of Christian worship? The Lord's Supper, breaking of bread. So why do we do it? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Memories will help you worship. How good is your memory? The psalmist knows that he must make a conscious, intelligent effort when he blesses the Lord to remember the benefits that he's received during the past week. So we, we should learn from this, you know, using our memory, forget not his benefits, he says, and go back over 
them, you know, what he's done for you through the week. All of us can remember the benefits of belonging to God. The benefits of belonging to God are so huge, but you can actually forget those too and start to grumble and complain. And when you do, you're forgetting all his benefits. So let's look at the blessings David remembers after, um, well, let me just, let me just read it. And then we'll come back to um, my commentary here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He starts with who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He is not, has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west so far he has removed our transgressions from us as a father pities his children so the lord pities those who fear him for he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust as for man his days are like grass as a flower of the field so he flourishes for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his host, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So David is reeling them off so quickly. He can't even, you know, spare a whole sentence for each one, just a phrase. He says, who forgives? That's the first thing he mentions as if it's the biggest thing in the whole memory that he's got of God's dealing with him. You know, the very first blessing he thinks of, you know, I think, I think it actually would be helpful for us to think about that ourselves. You know, what would be the first blessing that I would think of this last week? Would it be forgiveness? Who forgives all your iniquities? There is no blessing like that. There is no blessing like that. There's no relief like the relief of knowing that you have been forgiven. There is no joy like the joy of knowing that what was wrong that I did has been forgotten. Amen. You know, the second phrase, which I appreciate, he says, who heals all of your diseases. Think of the number of times that germs have touched your body and they didn't win the battle. The number of times that we could have been very ill, but we weren't. You know, the number of days that we did get to enjoy good health, do we bless the Lord for the times that we've gotten better? You know, the next theme thing he says is, um, who redeems your life from the pit? Well, if you know anything about a mining community, um, you know that uh, the, there's drama and relief when people are rescued from the pit. 
David is saying, you know, many times that he's been in danger, danger of death, and the Lord has rescued him. And maybe you could say that. I know I could say that, that I've had near-death experiences, things where I, it could have been the last day for me, but the Lord rescued me. You know, and even if he hasn't, if you haven't had those near-death kind of experiences, someday he will rescue you from the pit. He not only rescues us from death, but from hell. He redeems your life from the pit. God has crowned him, he says, with steadfast love and mercy. Now look at the next little blessing, who satisfies you with good as long as you live. Every part of that sentence is just remarkable to me. First of all, <clears throat> we live in a world that's terribly dissatisfied. People are trying this, that, and the other, but evil does not satisfy. There's only one thing that satisfies, and that is good. You know, and some people take a lot of convincing to, to persuade them um, that goodness satisfies because the world seems to say, try something evil, then you'll be satisfied. Try this, you know, and it might seem like for a short time that that's true, you know, because there's pleasure and sin for, for a season, but you can't say of anything as long as you live, you know, because even whatever hobbies or interests that you take up, they're going to satisfy you for a time, but there's going to come a day when they just don't offer you the same joy. Even healthy things can fail to satisfy us at some point. And I, you know, and I think that's really just because God made us for himself and he made us for goodness. Godliness with contentment is great gain to satisfy you as long as you live. He says he's not going to, he hasn't promised to satisfy you with many things or satisfy you with expensive things, but he said he'd satisfy you with good things. So if you think back over the past week, is it the good things that satisfied you? And I also want you to keep in mind that this list of blessing, it's David's list. It's not yours and it's not mine. So make your own list like he made his list. And if there are certain things that you're not enjoying benefits from the Lord, then ask yourself whether it was or is true of you as it was of David, that you're a person after God's own heart. Because if you're not, then you're not likely to probably enjoy the blessings to the same degree. From looking at God's activity um, on his behalf, um, to think, you know, he began to think like, what lies behind this? So not only what God does, but why does he do it? David was <clears throat> asking questions about what kind of person is he? What are the attributes of his character that make him behave in this way towards me? And there were three headings here. And under each of them, there's a contrast. First of all, God is a God of justice. That's why he does certain things. Second, God is a God of mercy. That's why he does certain other things. And thirdly, he's a God of pity. And that's why he does other things. And we look at these things just as mercy and pity, and we see that when God re relieves people's troubles, it's often because of his justice. God hates those who exploit other people. You know, God is truly troubled and he cares about those, he says, that are downtrodden, you know, the oppressed, or those who know th through no fault of their own are suffering from others. You know, God vindicates people. Um, but if God was only a God of justice, then we would be in trouble. So the second thing mentioned in verse eight is that God is a God of mercy. 
You know, God can be very angry, and he is when we sin, but God's anger is not like my anger, you know, in two ways, really. First, because he's slow to get angry, and second, because he's only angry for a short time, whereas I can probably, in my humanity, sometimes stay angry longer. (laughs) So he'll not keep his anger forever. You know, when I do wrong, what God has shown me about himself is that he's angry. No question about that. He will correct me. He'll tell me that it's wrong. And then he'll bring his mercy. And at this point, David returns to forgiveness. And you know the reason he does. We know that from Psalm 51. So he wants to bless God for a negative thing and a positive thing. The negative thing was that he's blessing God for is that God did not do what he should have done that God didn't do what he might have done, you know, and I can tell you what you or I would get if we actually got what we deserved, we'd be in our coffins right now. That's truth. You know, it's out of his mercies that we're not consumed. I bless God that he doesn't deal with me according to my sin, or I know I wouldn't be here, but did you ever bless God, you know, not for doing what he might have done to you? So blessing him for what he hasn't done to you, something you deserved, but you you didn't have to receive that punishment because you've been forgiven. That's awesome. You know, now we also find the positive side as far as the East is from the West, which are the dimensions of forgiveness. And finally, God is a God of pity because he remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are basically like the flowers, which you know, in a week's time are going to be gone. He knows we're here today and gone tomorrow. So how, how does he help? How does he help us? He tells us that's really how he tells us through his word, things that inject hope into us. He offers us his truth that his love goes on. He says, my love is an everlasting love. It'll go on to your children and your children's children. Man's life is so transient, but God remembers this. Into our fleeting little lives, he injects a love that goes on and therefore a love that will keep us going on. He offers us the hope of eternal life. And then at the end of verses 11, 13, and 17, we read those who fear him. There's nothing automatic about the love of God. Nothing automatic about his mercy and his pity. It comes, the Bible tells us, to a particular group of people only, those who fear him. And, you know, some people tell us that fear is about emotion and that it sets up, you know, all kinds of inhibitions about the wrong things, you know. And there certainly um, can be phobias, you know, that are unhealthy sort of fears. But there is one fear that is, is healthy, and it is the fear of the Lord. It's a fear That is the first wise thing that you ever did if you fear the Lord, not to be frightened of God, but to fear grieving his holiness, to fear his anger, to fear displeasing your maker. So it's not unconditional. All these things come to those who remember. And here is the memory again. He said in in this psalm, remember to do his commandments, to live his way. Finally, the psalmist broadens it out 
he's already thinking about others, his grandchildren, but now he's thinking about everyone who's going to be singing this song. He's thinking about more than that. And he realizes that God is king over all. And do you know what made David a great king? It's that he acknowledged a greater king. All of the world's you know, greatest rulers have been those who have acknowledged a greater ruler. The world's worst dictators are those who didn't acknowledge anybody above themselves. The Lord has established his thrones in, throne in the heavens. His kingdom is over all. Therefore, anybody can come and, and join me in blessing the Lord. And so here there's just beautiful, this admonishment of David, even calling on the angels, you angels up there, give him your obedience. And then you give him your praise. Join us in blessing the Lord. You angels and his people in the temple with, you know, all of you join me, all the hosts and his ministers, you bless the Lord. Then he looks at nature around and the horizons that stretch out, you know, from Jerusalem. And he calls on the hills and all the works and all of the dominion, the angels, the hosts, the horizons around us, all the works bless the Lord, you know, and then David finishes by saying it to himself again, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And I just think that tonight, that I hope something's stirring in you about our need to bless the Lord and how this gift of praise and thanksgiving is a desire of our God for us to have hearts of gratitude and for us to actually stop and thank the Lord for what he's done for us, to stop and acknowledge, you know, and to make ourselves come into alignment with the reality of, of his sovereignty in our life and that all that we have to be thankful for, regardless of our circumstances. There's so much, but it is important that we um, cultivate a, a heart and an attitude of praise and thanksgiving to our God. You know, he inhabits the praises of his people. And so I just wanted to open it up now to just ask, you know, for any of you that want to share, um, if there's something on your heart, is there something that you want to say corporately to bless the Lord? Is there something that you can recall that you want to thank the Lord for um, during our time together as we just lift up his holy name and bless him? I just, I thank Jesus every day. I wake up and I say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, even when I do not feel like it. And there are many mornings where I have excruciating pain, but I thank the Lord and I bless his name. And today I said, Lord Jesus, I bless your name. I bless your name. You are so good. It's not that you are being slack by not coming back. It's because you want none to perish and you are so merciful and loving. And um, I just, I thank him for everything. And I thank him for my godly friends. I thank him for my spiritual family and I thank him for the Holy Spirit and to help me to pray. I always say that, thank you, Jesus, for teaching me how to pray. Amen. Man, great teaching tonight. Appreciated your perspective and reminder to us on suffering. And um, man, 
the importance of blessing the Lord. And I love Psalm 103 is my favorite Psalm. So just perfect. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've actually been writing a book and uh, I've been going through my story. And I guess, as you asked that question, what, what do you want to say to like to bless the Lord? What's kind of bubbling up. And I just, as I think back over my life, there's, there's really, you know, there's the 10,000 plus things that we can think of family, health experiences, education, um, just the revelation, salvation. Uh, you know, there's all of the words that, that, reflect the knowledge of things that God has made available and done uh, for me and for us. And then there's the 10,000 little things that we don't consider, how intricately he weaves our stories. And um, I just think about all of the, the times when he's arranged things that only he could have done, like kind of the invisible and is authoring and moving and weaving together people at a particular place at a particular time and orchestrating circumstances that are just beyond the ability to for a human being to control and i just want to i guess what i'm saying is i just want to thank the lord for his leadership and for his goodness and how he leads us, we don't deserve it. We don't, there's nothing we can do to earn it. There's no way that we were smart enough or clever enough uh, or skilled enough to protect ourselves. And so it's like, he's just this, like David talks about him being the shield around us. And uh, I, I had the opportunity to preach yesterday and um I shared because a friend of mine sent me this uh, link to this devotional from David Wilkerson, and he was talking about the passage in scripture where, where Jesus is praying in John 17, and he's saying, I have kept them, these referring to the disciples, I've kept all that you've given me, um, except for obviously Judas, but he's saying, I've kept them. And David Wilkerson was talking about that word kept in the Greek. And he says it means a fully functioning military outpost filled with a garrison of soldiers, watchmen on the walls who see the enemy from a far distance, and full military apparatus. And when you think about on earth as it is in heaven, you know, we're all, we're all these outposts for the kingdom. Each one of us are walking around uh, with this Psalm 103 channel of communication, this worship and prayer. Uh, command center that is centered in his presence and he's empowering us uh, but it's like he's he's keeping us uh, and protecting us and establishing us on the earth and none of us deserve any of that um, but I'm just reflecting on on how good he is even when we're our hearts not aren't fully in it uh, we 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 sin we backslide we fall away we the flesh is willing, uh, or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All those ways that we fail on a regular basis as human beings doesn't hinder the Lord in the least. And he, it says, the Bible even says he's kind even to the wicked. He, he right, lets the sun and the rain fall on the wicked even. And, and so it's just, we're worshiping this amazing 
God, whose love is so far beyond our ability to comprehend it. And that's really what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that, that we would know how high and how wide, how deep and how long his love really is, though we will never truly comprehend it. And so I just want to declare, Lord, I thank you for your leadership, and I thank you for the fact that you are uh, the one who keeps us and delivers us from evil, and you are a shield around us in Jesus' name. Amen, Jed. I, um, I so agree with you. I think, you know, there are so many things that we have no idea what the Lord has done for us as well. Things that we've prayers that have been answered that we just don't know what was coming, but for the Lord. So he's been so good to us. And, um, you know, and so I think that's why we see here, he says, and forget not his benefits. You know, we've got to, you know, David even, he encouraged himself in the Lord. He had to remind himself of the word of the Lord, you know, and spur, spur himself on um, in the word of the Lord. And I think we need to do that too. And I think that's what we see as we're going through these Psalms, not just reading over them on a surface level, but really digging into the heart of, of you know, the spirit that was prompting them to be written, that there's a depth of, of intimacy that we find when we're really seeking the Lord in these ways and emulating much of how the psalmist spoke and and communed with the Lord. Um, and even in, we see, you know, one of the things that's so encouraging is we see so many of the Psalms where there are great times of trouble that the psalmists are going through and they're writing about how they feel abandoned or they feel alone or what have you, but they're still believing and trusting and hoping and knowing that God is their refuge and that they're asking him for help. Um, and deliverance. And um, it's just wonderful. These, these promises, but examples that have been given to us to encourage us in our day to make this word of God active and alive in our own lives, something that's written thousands of years ago, that has this ability to stir us and motivate us and teach us and lead us in the way we should go. And also in how do we properly commune with the Lord. What does he want from us when we bring our offerings? You know, we want to bring pleasing offerings unto the Lord. He wants one contrite hearts, humble, humble hearts before him. You know, he wants clean hands, pure hearts, and um, thankfulness. That's what he wants. He wants us to not forget what he's done for us. That's where we see all through the Old Testament, how the, the Israelites would constantly forget. God would deliver them and then they would forget and they'd go do their own thing. And, you know, it happens to us too. You know, think to a time where maybe you needed God desperately and prayed and sought the Lord wholeheartedly. And then when he answers the prayer, are you still praying like that? You know, it's like, Things kind of change when things are okay. Sometimes we can get on hosting along and get into that place where we can truly forget because like you said, Jed, our uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so this is where we have to bring our bodies into the submission to the word. 
This is what Paul said. I beat my body into submission. He's just making his body, this flesh, this unruly flesh that doesn't want to do the things the spirit wants to do, or that gets distracted or off course or wants to, but he's got to make it stay the course. And fortunately, we have the helper to help us do that. You know, the Lord said we aren't doing it alone. It is him working in us to enable us to do this. Praise the Lord. And I thank him for that. I thank him that he is faithful. He's so faithful and that he is working in us to bring about the salvation. He who began the work in you is faithful to complete it. Hallelujah for that. Is anyone else, anyone else that would like to share? Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful lesson, and it's truly been blessing me. And as I was listening to everyone who came on, and my mind just went back to my whole life. It's just like I just remembering those things that God has done, those things that he has kept me from, those things that he allowed me to go through and how he brought me out. Um, it's just, it's just a, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's just wonderful what he does and his faithfulness his faithfulness and his love and his kindness and his, and his gentleness, all that he is. And it's just, it's overwhelming. It's so overwhelming, but it's just like, why God, you know, you love us so much. You love me so much. Even in my, even in my good days and bad days, you love me still. And you wait patiently for me to get my head together. And you know, I'm coming back. It's just, you know, sometimes I don't feel like I'm coming back but he waits patiently for me. And, and I love that. And I looked, I looked over my life and, and just when I was from a little girl to a teenager, to an adult, to a mom, to a wife, to a mother, to a grandmother, and it's just all that he's done and all that he has provided, even through the tears, um, he kept me, even through the pain, he kept me, even through um, doubt and uncertainty, he still kept me. He is just so faithful. He's just so faithful. Um, when I turned away, he never turned away from me. And, and when I turned back around, he was right there. And so that's, that's what I am just, I'm blessed the Lord, oh, my soul. And all that is within me. Um, I, I just, I, I love him. I love him. I love him. I love him. And I can't love him enough. And I can't be thankful enough. I'm just so grateful. I am grateful. I'm really grateful. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Connie. Beautiful um, testimony of praise and thankful thankfulness to the Lord. Anyone else? I'm sorry. I just could not pass up an opportunity to say just how good and gracious and merciful our Father is. And that throughout, gosh, years, he has just shown himself over and over to me as the faithful one. And seeing me through, through the, the murder of my son and, and my husband's transition. And even to this day, I can say I know him as a comforter and that God will be just what you allow him to be to you. He is such a good, good father, a good father. 
and and how he have blessed me to know that nothing matters outside of him. Nothing matters outside of him. And when he says for us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as our as to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And when we do that, where does that leave us? If we spend our time and our focus and all that, all of us, all of ourselves loving him and loving others, because he will take care of us, whatever we need, he will supply. And he is so faithful, so faithful to his word. And I just thank him and, and just, I just can't praise him enough. Hallelujah. He is everything. He is. Amen. Teresa, I see you're unmuted. Um, yes, of course. Um, I haven't spoken up just because I've just been weeping, listening to all this. <laughs> but, you know, I, um, I am just so grateful for what the Lord has done for me. And I couldn't bless him enough for the miracles, the absolute miracles that he has done for me in the last nine years. And, you know, I spent so many years prior to that, just going back and forth in a relationship with him, thinking that it was acceptable and just, you know, kind of doing my own thing and praising him when I felt like I needed to or calling on him when I felt like I needed to or but since um he did this miracle in my life nine years ago there's nothing else that I want to do besides just to praise him all day all day long I wake up in the middle of the night praising him and I just I drive along in the car with my hand up and I just praise him and I and there's just something that is about that that he has just written himself on my heart and that's what I care to do. Um, and I can't thank him enough. I just can't thank him enough. And I just wanted to say that. So, Hallelujah. I love your beautiful testimony, Teresa. Amen. Anybody else? One thing I'll mention, this is Kimberly and Krista. Thank you for your um, message and delivery tonight, but I guess I just never viewed it as, um, what I could do to bless the Lord. You know, I just, I've never viewed it like that. I've always viewed all the blessings that he's given me. And I just have always concentrated and focused on thanking him for those daily blessings, um, and opportunities to use me as his vessel. So the fact that you shed light that I can bless him through praise and worship and acknowledging and thankfulness. And um, I don't know, it's, it's encouraging because sometimes you don't, you just feel like a little speck of sand in the, on the seashore. You don't, you don't feel like you're, you know, that you can make a difference. You're just hoping and praying that you do in this life. So thank you for tonight. Amen. Amen. And I think that is um, important, an important aspect as well, you know, just thinking about our worship 
you know, just how important our worship is to the Lord and, and really having the right attitude in our worship, not being distracted, but being totally focused on him. You know, when we look at what does the Lord want from us, he wants it all. He wants everything. <laughs> not a, not a small order there. He wants it all and he deserves it all. So that's the thing is that he is so worthy of our praise. He's worthy. He's worthy. I'm going to um, put on a worship song and I would like to ask everyone to grab your elements for communion. Um, if you don't have wine, you can um, get some water or, you know, whatever you have. Uh, water's fine. Jesus turned water into wine. So hallelujah. He understands what we're doing and recognizes and sees our supper that we're partaking online. If you don't have matzah or bread or cracker, um, I mean, I'm sure you probably have one of those things. So maybe if you could find just a little nibble of one of those things. And then uh, Jed, if you're available, would you lead us in communion after the song? Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. So I will put on this worship music. Let's just enter into some praise. Grab grab the elements that you need um, to participate in communion, and we'll come back together and do that here before we close. Let me grab a song for us. I sing praises to your name. Oh, praises. Worship you alone. 
with me from your heart forever you will be the lamb on the throne I gladly bow my knee and worship
Let's just go ahead and grab them with me. I'm going to continue in worship and just celebrate the Lord's Supper. I just feel led as we're listening to that worship and to just walk through the Lord's Prayer together as we do this. Um, you know, the disciples asked him, would you, would you teach us how to pray? And we can pray the 15 second version of the Lord's Prayer and that's great. But I think each one of those words 
in this prayer are like runes that you can go into and just reflect on um, infinitely. They're inexhaustible concepts. Like the idea that he is our heavenly father. Jesus taught us to pray to our father. The one who knows no beginning and will know no end. He is our master. He is our teacher. He is our commander. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And yet we're taught to relate to you, Lord, as our father. So we thank you for your love and patience, Lord. I thank you that as we talked about tonight, you're slow to anger and abounding in love. And just as a father has compassion on his children, Lord, thank you that you don't wad us up and throw us away even though we deserve that, you're kind. And you put up with so many things. And you're just so good. And we just honor you as our father. And you're in heaven. We just line up with the reality that we're seated with you in heavenly places, as Paul said in Colossians 3, for us to set our minds on the things above. We just choose to set our minds right now, continuing to, on these truths and on these things that are eternal and pure and right. And that we're bilocational. We're in two places, Lord. We're here on the earth, but we're also in heaven united with you. And that's actually more true. The spirit world and the supernatural is more true than the material world that we can just see with our physical eyes. So we thank you, Lord, that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth and that we are seated in heaven with you. And we just say, hallowed be your name. We honor and fear and revere that you have the name above all names. And so we just recognize that, Lord, that there's no other gods before you. And we bow our knee now and say, Lord, we bow our knee just as we say, gladly bow my knee and worship you alone. Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done, not ours. Regardless of all the things going on in each one of our lives and families, Lord, we just agree in prayer, Lord, your will to be done. And for us to be content, knowing that no matter how we feel, you are good and you are in control. You are on the throne because it is your kingdom. And we just ask for your will to be done here on earth, Lord, as it is in heaven. In specific situations that are representative around this table of fellowship tonight, different decisions that are needed to be made, different uh, aspects of requests that are, are sitting before you, Lord, on earth, Lord, that you would flow into these situations. We thank you for the, our daily bread, your provision. Lord, we've had food, you've provided shelter, you've provided clothing, but so much more, so much more have you provided physically and provisionally, but how much more, Lord, spiritually, that we don't live by bread alone or by physical provision, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we just take the bread right now and we realize, Lord, that you are the bread from heaven, that we need your word in our life right now. And as we remember this, we remember that it was your body that was broken 
just as we break this bread, representative of all that you've made available to us, not just the forgiveness of sins, but you brought us in to an eternal uh, life relationship with you forever. So we thank you, Lord, for that. We give you the praise for your body that was broken. We thank you for your blood that was poured out that forgives us from our sins and establishes the new covenant for Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free. You bring us all into your heart. And so we thank you, Lord, and we remember that it was your blood that made us all of this available because you were willing to go to the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. We thank you for your forgiveness for our sins, and we pray that you'd help us to forgive those who have sinned against us. If there's any uh, grudges or bitterness that we need to release and, and forgive, I pray that you would move in, in our midst and highlight those things. And lead us not into temptation, Lord, or distraction, or into things that carry us our hearts from you, but Lord, that you would safeguard us and, and lead us into your presence, lead us into deeper revelation of your love and your word. And deliver us from evil, Lord, from the plans and the plots, the devices, the assignments, the weapons of our enemy. Lord, I thank you that we're those military outposts in the spirit, that a fully garrisoned military outpost in the kingdom of God. For yours is the power, yours is the glory, yours is the honor forever and ever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. We're grateful for what you have done in the past, what you are doing now, and all that you will do in the days ahead in our lives and in our stories to bring your name glory. In Jesus' name, amen.